The reading today is from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23, through chapter 11, verse 1. I will be reading in Spanish. The English translation will be on the screen as I read. Todo está permitido, pero no todo es provechoso. Todo está permitido, pero no todo es constructivo. Que nadie busque sus propios intereses, sino los del prójimo. Como ante todo, lo que se vende en la carnicería, sin preguntar nada por motivos de conciencia, porque del Señor es la tierra y todo cuanto hay en ella. Si algún incrédulo no los invita a comer y ustedes aceptan la invitación, coman de todo lo que les sirvan sin preguntar nada por motivos de conciencia. Ahora bien, si alguien les dice, esto ha sido ofrecido en sacrificio a los ídolos, entonces no lo coman por, lo, por consideración del otro, no a la de ustedes. ¿Por qué se ha de juzgar mi libertad de acuerdo con la conciencia ajena? Si con gratitud participo de comida, ¿me van a condenar por comer algo por lo cual doy gracias a Dios? En conclusión, ya sea que coman o beban, hagan cualquier otra cosa, háganlo todo para la gloria de Dios. No hagan tropezar a nadie, ni a judíos, ni a gentiles, ni a la iglesia de Dios. Hagan como yo, que procuro agradar a todos en todo. No busco mis propios intereses, sino los de los demás, para que sean salvos. Enmítenme a mí, como yo imito a Cristo. This is God's word. Please be seated. Good morning, church. Welcome to Trinity City Church. If I have never met you before, I'm Brian. I'm one of the pastors here. Kids uh, through second grade are dismissed for Children's Church. A reminder to parents to pick your kids up right before, right after you take communion and bring them back in for the second half of the service. Uh, I felt like we could have just wrapped up the service after that Palm Sunday choir, kids choir. We should have at least taken an offering or something after that. That was, that was quite, quite great. Uh, if you're just tuning in or visiting today, we're in 1 Corinthians as our sermon series. We're getting right into the heart of it. Uh, but one of the things we're going to do next week is we're going to go out of order in terms of the chapters. We will be wrapping up chapter 10 today, but then skipping over some of those chapters uh, to get to chapter 15. And if you know anything about 1 Corinthians, the reason we're doing that is Paul addresses the resurrection in chapter 15. And since next week is Easter, we thought that would be fitting. Uh, so I don't know uh, if this is, uh, I think I would probably get an F for this in seminary, uh, skipping over all those chapters, but we'll get back to it after we do about three Sundays in a row in chapter 15. We'll get back to chapter 11 and finish it up, that section of 1 Corinthians that way. So we're wrapping up a main section uh, of 1 Corinthians that Paul has been addressing a specific issue since chapter 8. He's going to be wrapping up uh, that um, issue and that topic here at the end of chapter 10, the beginning of chapter 11. So let's go ahead and pray and dive into this section. Lord, thank you for this gathering. Thank you for the praises that these children sung to you and your son. Thank you, Lord, that, uh, that this gathering of people has been doing the same today. 
and that we desire to do it throughout our lives, Lord. We want to give you glory in everything we do, not just in the things that we sing on Sunday, but in all of life, Lord. We want to give you glory and bear witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we don't want to do this based on our own power, but the power of the Holy Spirit, and that Spirit is here right now, making your word come alive, and then taking that word into our hearts and into our lives to transform us by the power of that word. So do that now as we preach. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What's your decision-making process? If you have a big decision, maybe even a small decision, what is the process you go through to determine what decision you're going to make? Let's say you're thinking about moving. Let's say you're thinking about taking on a new job or keeping the one you have, or if you're going to go back to school for another degree, or determine whether or not to take on a new responsibility that's going to take up a lot of time in your life. Or let's say you're trying to decide if you're going to follow an institution's COVID-19 policies, right? Some of you are uh, making those types of decisions the last couple years. If you're trying to decide on any of those things, what is the process? And one of the things I tried to think about is what is the typical American approach to decision-making? And I think it would be something like this. Number one, consult the internet. Go over there, you're making a significant health decision, so you're gonna go to Reddit and see what's up there, right? So, and then after that, once you do your research online, then you're gonna to try to figure out some other answers to some other questions. Maybe a question like this, is it legal? Well, if it's not, if it, if it is legal, then maybe I can do it. Will it make me happy? I think those are the two main questions that Americans will ask in the decision-making process. Is it legal? and will it make me happy? And if the answer to those two questions is yes, then maybe there's some other considerations that go into a decision-making process. Maybe questions like, well, will it make me look bad if I do this? Americans care about that. Will it hurt anybody else significantly? That's a part of the decision-making process. And maybe some, if you're very, very uh, responsible, you'd say, can I afford this? But not everybody gets to that question either. You might just put it on the credit card, right? And so that's how, in a typical American, uh, goes through a decision-making process. I think those are the types of things they're considering. That's the type of research that they're doing. And I'm not saying that that whole process is bankrupt. There's some common grace there. There's some good tips that I think we should, uh, should say, hey, that's not a terrible decision-making process. At least there is a process. Uh, but, but I think it is shallow biblically. And that's one of the things I hope you've been seeing since chapter 8, is that biblically speaking, there's a richer way that Christians are called to make decisions in their life. And that's what Paul has been uh, showing us since chapter 8. In this situation, the topic is an ancient uh, controversy that uh, Paul was taking on to the question, can Christians go to a social event at a pagan temple and eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols? And Christians were split. They had had disagreements over how to answer that question. But since chapter 8, Paul has been showing us how to go about making a determination on answering a question like that. Not only questions about does the Bible permit it or does my conscience allow it, even if you answer yes to questions like that, Paul wants us to consider, for example, in chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians, he wants us to understand what impact does this decision have on other Christians. He wants us to be very concerned about that even if we have freedom to do something. And then in chapter 9, he's very concerned about what impact 
does my decision on this topic have on those that don't believe in the gospel? What kind of Christian witness does this serve in my community and the world? And in today's chapter, chapter 10, he wants us to consider in this decision-making process, what effect does the decision to this question have on my own Christian growth? So we're going to consider the answer to that question and how Paul uh, processes that, and then we're going to wrap up the entire argument that he makes in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10. Uh, I wanted to do this in two sermons, by the way, but we had to squeeze it in to get ready for Easter, so we'll see how it goes. I edited a lot out of this message, but this was supposed to be two. We'll see what happens, all right? Let's go ahead and start unpacking that first question. What impact does this decision have on my Christian growth? Paul wants us to consider that question. Let's see how he has us consider it. Verse 1 through 5. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the same spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them, and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Paul is starting to look to the past in the Old Testament to provide examples to warn Christians here in the present in his context of Corinth. In the Exodus story, that's what he's bringing up, God's people passed through the sea and under the cloud that led them to redemption. And in a sense, they were all baptized into Moses. And Christians at this time, when they'd be reading and hearing this, they'd be thinking about their own baptism, that Christians go through the water too and are baptized into Christ. In the Old Testament, Paul's bringing up to mind that God's people ate bread from heaven and water poured out of the rocks for them to drink. And Christians at that point would be thinking, well, we do something similar. We eat the bread at the table and drink the cup. Yet despite these things, despite being redeemed out of slavery and getting nourishment from God's blessings, the Lord was not pleased with his people. And he gives this vivid picture of God's judgment that their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. This vivid imagery of God's judgment being like a tornado that's ripping through a crowd of people. It's something you do not want to mess with. His point is just because you have been redeemed in Christ, that you've been baptized in his name, and you're being nourished at the Lord's Supper, doesn't mean that you can't displease God or arouse his judgment. And it's a vivid reminder for these knowledgeable Christians that think that they are strong, that they're not merely dealing with ideas and propositions of something that you believe in. God is not an idea. He's a living being and a person that can be jealous and angry with our decisions. He then goes on to verses 6 to 10, and I won't read these, but he gives four examples of this happening in the Old Testament. He shares the story of God's people who were redeemed out of Egypt again, but then they make a golden calf and worship that calf instead of worshiping the God who redeemed them. And they celebrate their calf that they make with food and drink, and then it says that God's anger burned against his people. He shares an Old Testament story of sexual immorality when God's people started to sleep with 
pagans who invited them to make sacrifices to their gods, and God's people participated by eating and bowing down to these gods. And then he gives the example that God responded by judging 23,000 people with a judgment of death. The third story is when God delivered his people from a powerful king, yet they responded during this journey and this deliverance by testing the Lord. God's people complained about God's provision for food, so God judges his people by sending venomous snakes to bite them, and many of them die. And the final example, it's not clear exactly where in the Old Testament it's coming from, but God's people are blessed, and they grumble, and God's judgment comes, this time through the angel of death. Now, why is he giving all these examples? This is a real killjoy part of the sermon, right? Why are these really dreadful examples of God's judgment? Why is he giving these examples? He repeats himself in verses 6 through 11. He says, Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. In other words, he tells Christians then and now, see yourself in these stories. Don't think that this can't happen to you, that you don't just see yourself in the hero of the story, you also need to see yourself as a broken sinner who can do the same things that God's people have done in the past. And so he says, be careful, verses 12 through 13. If you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Some may think that they're strong and nothing will ever happen to them. But in reality, Paul warns them, such people especially need to be careful because they too can fall. You can be so prideful and so confident in your own strength and knowledge that that is precisely the moment where you may be taken out by your own sin. It reminds me of a situation, uh, this example of somebody becoming too prideful but then falling in the end. It reminds me of a basketball game I recently went to. I went to a, a, a tournament basketball game with McAllister and Augsburg. The men's basketball team were playing in downtown Minneapolis at Augsburg, and I got the joy to go to that uh, game with some friends and my wife. And it was a great basketball game. Uh, it's been a long, long time since I've seen basketball this, this well because I'm a Timberwolves fan and that just doesn't happen very often uh, for the Minnesota sports team. Just a great competitive game and was going back and forth. And at one point, Augsburg was starting to pull ahead. And there's a crowd of us in the stands that were clearly fans for McAllister. And at this time that they were starting to pull ahead, one of the, the opponents, the Augsburg player, gets a breakaway dunk, and he throws down this vicious dunk. I didn't even think this kid could get that high. And he throws it down, and he turns to the side where we were sitting, all the McAllister fans, and just starts boasting, just like, you suckers are going down. And they, he had reason to be confident because they were ranked higher than McAllister. McAllister's uh, basketball team was not ranked very high. Well, I was very satisfied at the end of the game because in the closing seconds, McAllister wins the basketball game. And at the very end, because this also happened right in front of the, the stands of the of McAllister fans, that same player is just sitting on the ground with his back on the wall, pouting. 
can't believe that this happened to him. I even saw a couple tears running down his Augsburg cheek. It was so sad. <laughs> and I loved it. That was the favorite part of the game. I loved that more than the fact that they won. Just seeing that particular player just go down in flames because of his stupid pride. I loved it. That's the similar point that Paul is making here. When you're making a decision in your life, don't think that you're beyond and above God's judgment. That anything that you decide, you're so knowledgeable, you're so strong, that you couldn't possibly fall. You couldn't possibly get entrapped into sin. Don't think this judgment can't happen to you, Paul is warning us. It can, especially if you're boastful, especially if you're prideful. But in these verses, he also gives some assurance. He says temptation is a part of our human experience. And, but we're not alone when we face temptation, the verses said. God is faithful to his people. We don't face temptation alone. And when you face any sort of temptation, disobedience isn't the only option. You always have a way to obey and glorify God with choices and temptations that are in front of you. And he wants us and wants us to take the pathway to obedience. So instead of thinking that you're invincible, or instead of thinking that there's only one option, Paul warns us in verse 14, therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. We know from the New City Catechism, what is idolatry? Idolatry is trusting in created things rather than the creator for our hope and happiness, significance, and security. And the Corinthians were being idolatrous, especially these strong, boastful Christians that thought they were in the know, and they were trusting too much in their own knowledge and their own strength for their security in this decision-making matter, which is making them blind to the awful consequences that their decisions have on other people and on themselves. In verses 15 through 18, we won't read those verses, but Paul references a couple different meals that unite God's people in fellowship with one another and fellowship with the Lord. And his point in making those illustrations is that when God's people partake in a sacred meal, they're doing so in the presence of Christ and in the fellowship of others. Sacred meals matter, whether it's in the church or in a social setting of a temple in Corinth. But this is what happens, Paul says, that when you go to the pagan temple and you eat this meat, it's not just some type of neutral event that God doesn't care about where you can just make your determination and boast in your strength. This is what's going down, verses 19 through 20. Do I mean that the food sacrificed to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Paul continues to agree with these knowledgeable, strong Christians that yes, there is only God and these idols, they're not real. There's no multiple gods that we have to be worried about. There's one God who created heaven and earth. But he says that doesn't mean that participating in this table at the pagan temple is neutral, that it's just some type of secular decision that anybody can just kind of flippantly have a decision uh, on the matter. He says that there is real spiritual things going on behind this meal. 
He says that in the Lord's Supper, you're participating in that meal with the Lord and his people. God's presence is at the table for those who have faith, and he nourishes us with that presence, and we have fellowship and unity with God's people at that table. But what is happening at the temple? When you go to the temple, what is happening? He says, in those meals, you're participating and having fellowship with demons. And his point in saying it that directly and that vividly is that you can't do both. You can't do both. You can't go to both tables and think that there's no big deal on going to both tables. This is the God of the covenant. This is the God that says, I will be your God, you will be my people, and God doesn't cheat on us. God doesn't go wandering on, 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 uh, against us. He's faithful to us, and he calls us to be faithful to him in that relationship. It'd be the same way, and, and I know one of the most vivid covenants that we had in the modern world, because we don't have as many covenant illustrations that the ancient world had, but marriage is still a big one. And one of the things you're covenanting to in marriage is that, that I am going to be romantic with you and you alone. And so we even have a category, if you go out to eat with another person who's not your spouse in a romantic way, in a romantic dining table and the candles and it's in the evening and all that type of thing, we know that's inappropriate. You can't do that. To be faithful to your spouse means that that's the type of meal that you only have with your spouse. And to have that type of meal with somebody else means that you're being unfaithful, that you're flirting with danger. Why would you ever do that? Even if you think, ah, I won't lead anywhere, I'm going to be so strong and knowledgeable, it still is. This is a sacred type of meal, a romantic meal. And if you're married, you have romantic meals with the one you're in covenant with, not with other people. It's the same imagery. That's the Lord's table. The Lord's table is a way that we covenant with God and his people and say, this type of sacred meal is for the Lord and for his people alone. And that's why Paul says you can't go to the pagan temple and think that you can have a meal there and there won't be consequences, that you're not breaking covenant with the Lord and with other people. I mean, what are you trying to do, Paul asks, when you're going to this temple. And he says in verse 22, are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? And that is, when you read that verse in this argument, that should just wake you up. What are you doing? Are you trying to make him angry? Are you trying to make him jealous? Like that's what a good spouse would be. A good God would be jealous because he's like, I'm in covenant with you. Why are you wandering from me in my affections? Of course he would be jealous. And do you think, and this is, again, this is the Christians in Corinth that say we're so knowledgeable and we're so strong. And he says, if you arouse God's jealousy at these events at the temple, are you stronger than him? Are you going to take him out in a bar fight? I don't think so. God is stronger than you. You will not withstand his judgment. And that's why he's taking seriously, Paul is, and unpacking all these verses, that when you make a decision, your spiritual health needs to be a part of that decision-making process. Now, in verses 23 to the beginning of chapter 11, Paul wraps up and concludes his argument. Look at verses 23 through 24. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. 
No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Here Paul says that the Christian life is not mainly about what you have the right or freedom to do. Sometimes you have the freedom to do something, but it's not beneficial or constructive for others. So the Christian life is not about what's good for you, but what's good for others. And then he gets pastoral again and starts taking on two different uh, unique situations, unique uh, varieties on this question about, hey, what about the food that's sacrificed to idols, but now you're not at the temple, you're at the meat market. He says in verse 25, eat anything sold in the meat market without raising question of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. He quickly takes on this scenario because this is another question. Okay, you're clearly against going to the temple and doing this, but sometimes that temple meat makes it down to the marketplace in the meat market. Should we raise questions about it there? And he says, no, just eat it. The temple or the, 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 the Lord's earth, it's all his. Eat and enjoy it and be thankful. And then he turns, into another, turns to another pastoral question in verses 23, uh, 27 through 30. He says, if an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in a sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I am referring to other person's conscience, not yours, for why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? So it's hard to know exactly what type of situation Paul's taking on here, but it's likely that he's going to somebody's private house, he's not in a temple, and the advice is just don't worry about what's being put in front of you, just eat it. But probably what's happening is there could be another Christian in the household that's more from the weak perspective that this goes against that Christian's conscience, and they say, hey, FYI, this, this meat that's being served here, this was sacrificed uh, uh, at a temple, and I don't think we should eat it. And Paul is saying if you become aware of this, both for Christian witness for your host, but also for Christian unity with this weak brother who's in the household, then don't eat it because other things are a factor other than your freedom. So here's the principle that Paul is motivated by, because if it seems like he's all over the place, he's not. He is operating based on biblical principle that he summarizes in verses 31 through 33. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I tried to please everyone in every way, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. And you see those principles being unpacked once again that we've been hearing over and over again since chapter 8 and now to chapter 10. Now, let's put this in summary form. And I, I found this a while ago, but I, I'm excited to bring up this, this chart. Uh, we'll put it up here on the screen. It'll probably be really hard to see it, but I'll, I'll, I'll kind of unpack it. Um, it's, a, it's a chart from a book called Authentic Church where it talks about how does 1 Corinthians 8 through 10 help us to make decisions. And it's one of those charts where it says if it's yes, then go here and consider this question. If it's no, then here's the conclusion, right? So the first question that Christians always ask is, does the Bible allow it? And if the answer is no, then don't do it. The Bible says no, then don't do it. But what if the Bible says yes? Are you free? Go for it? No, then you have to consider another question. 
If the Bible permits it, then also ask, does my conscience allow it? Because in these chapters, we have been introduced to these weak Christians, but what that means is not that they are uh, some type of inferior Christians. It, was, it just means that they might have been new converts. And for them to go to the temple to, to participate in a meal like that, it went against their conscience because that was their former way of life. And there's other things that you might encounter things in your life where you're just like, I don't know about this. I just, I don't feel right about this. Like, and it could be for a variety of reasons. And the scriptures would say that if it goes against your conscience, don't do it. Just don't do it. But what if, what if you're free to do it? What if you're like, yeah, like, I think it's good. The Bible thinks it's good. Then can you do it? Nope. Pump the brakes again. Because there's some other things to consider based on 1 Corinthians 8 through 10. Three further questions Paul wants us to ask, even if the Bible permits it, even in your conscience you are free to do it, he says, ask these questions too in areas of freedom. What is the effect on other Christians? That's what chapter 8 was about. Okay, you're free to do this and it's biblical, but how is it going to impact other Christians? Not in theory, but in a real-life congregation setting like this, your brothers and sisters in Christ that you worship Jesus with each week and throughout your life, what impact does that have in the flesh and blood relationships you have right now in this fellowship? And if the answer is that it will negatively impact the brothers and sisters of Christ around you, then don't do it. Because Paul's point is that love is more important than knowledge. But we also have to ask the question, what effect does it have on those who don't believe the gospel? What effect does it have on our neighbors in Minneapolis-St. Paul who don't worship Jesus? What impact does it have on Christian witness? And if it's a negative impact, if it doesn't contextualize the gospel well, then don't do it. Because for Paul, and this is what he argued in chapter 9, the gospel is more important than your rights to do something. And then the third and final question he wants us to ask in this area of freedom is the one we consider today. What is the effect on my spiritual life? And he warns us, don't think that your decisions in life have no impact on your spiritual life. The decisions in your life and your practices and your habit have an incredible impact on your life as a Christian. Because for Paul, spiritual health is more important than your freedom to do it. And those are the principles that are operating in Paul's head. And for us, in any type of decision we need to make, it would be much more thick into the glory of God if these were the types of questions that we would be asking instead of some of the ones that I opened up with. Now, so if you're facing a question this week, or even if you're trying to figure out like maybe something that uh, you've made a decision in the past and you want to do a little audit, was it the right decision? How do you go about doing that? Not only just going through questions like this, but like sometimes it's just not like you sit down with a piece of paper and you just figure this out. It's just like, well, like how do I do my research on something like this? How do I even know that I'm answering these questions correctly and honestly? And one of the things that Paul ends with is obviously don't go to the internet. It didn't exist back then. But even, even, even for Christians nowadays, like usually we say, well, just read a book or just like do this thing by yourself. But one of the ways that Paul ends this conversation is so fascinating. Look at the first verse of chapter 11. Look at what he says. He says, follow my example as I am the example of Christ. If you want to really try to struggle through decision-making as a Christian, 
Don't do it by yourself. To apply it nowadays, don't sit down with it, just you and your smartphone or you and a book. You're in community for a reason. And hopefully a community that has mature brothers and sisters in Christ that have shown themselves capable of conducting life's most difficult decisions in a way that glorifies God. And if those types of humble, God-glorifying Christians are in your life, where they're just following the example of Christ, those are the types of folks that you go to and ask, okay, I'm, I'm wrestling with this, and this is how I'm thinking about this. Like, how would you do this? Because your desire is to follow the example of others as they follow the example of Christ. And it's not that those people are being boastful. Look at how good I am at these things. No, those are not the people you go to. Leave those folks alone, right? They need to figure things out and grow as a Christian. It's those humble, gracious saints that just go through life not being perfect, but being so concerned about the glory of God and the good of others. That's what Paul says in a different letter when he writes the same point in Philippians 2, 3 through 11, that when we seek to imitate Christ, that's how we know how to conduct our life. And I just want to end this sermon by simply reading those verses to close. Paul writes this, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Again, follow the example of Christ and follow those who imitate Christ well. And how does Christ provide an example for us? Verse 6, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant by being made in human likeness, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen.